Turn, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 3. This is a really good lesson to be short, because it's very controversial. <laughs> Let's remind ourselves yet again about what's happening that Peter is addressing in this letter. The church that he is writing this to is beginning to undergo persecution. We're not told what this persecution is, uh, but they're beginning to experience suffering for the faith. And we know that when you begin to experience suffering, there are certain natural tendencies. The first natural tendency is to pull back, to go and hide so the suffering goes away. It's like if we are suffering, there's something wrong. Something's broken. And to discuss that, he continually, and in today's lesson, talks about Jesus suffering on our behalf. And it's not because God's not in control. It's because God is using the suffering to accomplish his purpose. So Peter is telling the church, you are beginning to experience suffering but you need to make sure that you hang on to the hope that we have in Christ. So we have suffering, and our response to suffering is hope. It is fascinating because I was reading some article about Easter, actually, last Sunday. And I actually believe it was in the New York Times. And it was kind of a secular view of Easter's a good thing because it gives us hope. Well, I went looking at the comments posted online about this article, and it was fascinating because you see this idea that hope is just a con game, that hope is just building you up because there really is no hope. And I'm going, yeah, that's what the world sees. Apart from Christ, there is no hope. Apart from Christ, there is no redemption in the midst of suffering. So with all that in mind, we return once again to the idea of Christ's suffering. And the first verse we're going to look at is probably one of the best presentations of the gospel that's in the Bible. So we're going to read. Let's start in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Let's just stop right there. Let's jump down to chapter 4, verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Because Christ suffered, we are to live a different type of life. We are to live differently. So we have this great verse in verse 18, and then starting in chapter 4, verse 1, and you do remember, right, that when Peter wrote this letter, he didn't write chapter 4, verse 1. He wrote a letter. Later, the uh, chapters were put in there so that we could tell each other what we're reading. So 
There's a break there, but there's really not a break in the thought. Christ suffered, therefore we do something. Unfortunately, between verse 18 and verse 1 of chapter 4, there are some verses that are a little bit confusing. So we're going to spend all of our time on verse 18, so we run out of time and we don't have much time to deal with the controversial verses. Okay? You got the plan. I've let you in on my secret. For Christ also suffered. Church, you're beginning to experience suffering. You're beginning to experience difficult times. And I was reading something else this week that actually had nothing to do with preparation for this lesson. And it says, we as Americans think there's something wrong with suffering. As if, once again, the universe is broken. Well, the universe is broken, and that brokenness is called sin. Since Christ, for Christ, also suffered. Christ knows what you've been through, is what he's telling them. For Christ also suffered once for sins. Let's just stop right there. Here's a trick question. How many times did Christ die for our sins? Once. So if I sin tomorrow, does it take Christ dying again to pay the penalty for that sin? No. Once. Let's back up to the Old Testament. Moses, through the power of God, leads the nation of Israel out of captivity in Egypt to the Promised Land. And on the way, God gives Moses a description of the entire sacrificial system. If this occurs, here's the sacrifice. If this occurs, here's the sacrifice. One day a year, the Day of Atonement, we're going to give this really big sacrifice. You're going to take the animal in. You're going to offer a sacrifice for the priest. Then the, sacri then the priest is going to go in and offer a sacrifice for the people. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. And the book of Hebrews reminds us how often did he have to do that? Every year on the Day of Atonement and every day just for the sins that people had committed. Every day, every year, it had to be done. And the writer of the book of Hebrews reminds us Christ is the sacrifice, but he is the final sacrifice. There is no mountain of sin that Christ's sacrifice cannot cover. It isn't like, oops, I've run out of forgiveness. I've got to go do it again. Somehow, some way, I've got to go through this process again. No, once. Christ suffered. For Christ also suffered once for sins. So, what did we just call that? The Day of Atonement. What we refer to is Christ as our substitute 
Remember, the lamb was the substitute for the sins of the people. Christ shows up and John the Baptist looks at him and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the substitute who is providing the atonement, and this is known as substitutionary atonement. Christ is dying for us. How does that work? Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, no, no, wrong verse, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Now, here's a trick question. No, it's not a trick question. We have two categories, the righteous and the unrighteous. Who are the unrighteous? Us. We have this idea sometimes that I've got to clean myself up, make myself right with God so that I can approach God in order to be saved. Guess what? That's impossible. What does righteousness mean? In its simplest form, righteousness is being right with God. What is it that sets us apart from God? Sin. So, we are collectively, everyone that ever walked this planet, apart from Jesus Christ, falls into the category of the unrighteous. Now, you're going to die. I, I didn't hope I wasn't breaking any you know, secret to you. Why are you going to die? Well, back there in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve did what they were not supposed to do, and we as a human race started dying. Death is the penalty for sin. The purpose of the Lamb, the purpose of the atonement, was to provide a substitute for the penalty of the sin. But in order for there to be a replacement, a substitute, you got to find somebody who's not in this category of the unrighteous. You have to find a sacrifice who is without blemish, who is not dying because of their own sin, but is dying for ours. And that person is the person of Jesus Christ. The righteous dying for the unrighteous. That's the gospel message. Now, there are some people today, some theologians, who think this whole idea of the substitutionary atonement is just petty. I mean, you know, it's like God's mad and he's demanding something that doesn't make sense. No, God is holy. And he, a holy God, has provided a way that we, the unrighteous, can enter the presence of him, a holy God. And that is the gospel. It isn't that I clean myself up. 
It isn't that I did all the right things long enough to offset all the bad stuff that I've done. It's that I am unrighteous and Christ died for me. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? That he might bring us to God. We have discussed in here before, and we're not going to do it again because it's a convoluted discussion. You know, the whole history of religion. You're a good anthropologist today, and you study people around the world, and you go, they're all mixed up in their religious practices. Well, what we understand is that Adam and Eve in the garden sinned and were driven out of the garden. And for the rest of human history, humanity has been trying to work their way back into the garden. Work their way back into a right relationship with God. If I offer this sacrifice, if I do these deeds, if I make this incantation, if I, and all of humanity has worked in some form or fashion to work themselves back in to a right relationship with God. Guess what? It's not going to work. So Christ suffered the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? So that he might bring us. We couldn't do it. He comes and he says, come with me. And he, I wouldn't use the phrase, drags us kicking and screaming. But you know what? Sometimes that's what it takes. What do we learn from this? Salvation is a work of God from beginning to end. Salvation is God providing the means whereby we, the unrighteous, can enter the presence of a holy God. And that means is the sacrifice, the atonement of Jesus Christ. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. What is that about? Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers, having been made subject to him. There's a little bit of disagreement about what some of these verses mean. 
That's putting it mildly. But let's look at what he's trying to tell us to make sure we don't miss the point when we talk about the different interpretations of what this means. Noah is a character that all of us are familiar with. Noah built an ark, lots of rain, everybody wiped off the planet except Noah and his family. Noah is actually not mentioned that often in the New Testament. In fact, by name, he is mentioned three times. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, he is mentioned, by faith, Noah, knowing that disaster was coming, built an ark. The next time that he is mentioned is in 1 Peter, and the next time that he is mentioned is in 2 Peter. So Peter kind of likes Noah. Why? Why does he think this character is interesting and important to us? You see, we, as a child, you know, hear the story of Noah. Noah was, you know, righteous in God's eyes or something. God told him to make a boat. He made a boat, and the next day, all the animals showed up, and the next day, they got in the boat, and the next day, they got out of the boat, and there's the story, okay? In a nutshell, there's only one problem with that story. God told Noah to build a boat because it was going to rain and nobody on the earth had ever seen rain before. And he works on that ark for 120 years. Okay? Here's my question to you. You start building this massive structure in your backyard what are your neighbors going to think? I mean, really, what are they going to think? You're crazy. You're nuts. Why are you doing this? And Noah tells them why he's doing this. Destruction is going to come. We need to be ready. Destruction is going to come on all of humanity and we need to be ready. And how do you think they responded? You're nuts. For 120 years, Noah was doing what God told him to do without, to the best of our knowledge, a single convert. He was abused. He was laughed at. He was mocked. I can imagine the school kids showing up. There's Noah and his big wooden box. I might add, if any of you have any thoughts of watching the last Noah movie with Russell Crowe, do not watch that movie. It is the stupidest movie ever made. These big rock creatures show up to help Noah build the ark because he needs some heavy lifting. It's just bizarre. But you know what? The story is bizarre. And what is Peter telling us about our life as it reflected in Noah's life? Guess what? 
you're sharing the gospel with your neighbors. You're sharing the gospel. And the first part of the gospel is there's bad news. Because if there is no bad news, there's no need for good news. And you're telling them destruction is coming and there's only one hope and it's inside the big wooden box. You do know, right, that the ark is a picture of Christ providing salvation for us. There's no salvation for the people of Noah's time outside of the ark. There is no salvation outside of Christ. We know that, right? And if we teach that, what are people going to do? They're going to think you're crazy. You know, that's really intolerant. You know what? That's really narrow-minded. You know what? I think you're an idiot. And you're going to begin to suffer. You know, we sometimes get scared sharing the gospel with somebody that we're never going to see again. What will they think about me? And we're never going to see them again. Noah is building a big wooden box for 120 years around all of his neighbors. What was he doing for 120 years? We're actually going to see this in 2 Peter, where Peter tells us he was a preacher of righteousness. What is righteousness? How to be right with God. For 120 years. Now, we have this discussion. Was he preaching by nailing nails? The mere fact that he was building the ark was the sermon. And the answer is yes. Was he preaching by the words coming out of his mouth? The answer is yes. Because eventually, everybody, and I do mean everybody, is going to want to know, why are you building the big box? And guess what? Are we nailing nails and preaching righteousness in such a way that people might think we're crazy, but they might come ask us, why are you building the ark? And Peter is going to say, you're suffering? Let me tell you about this old guy that did it for 120 years. But, Hebrews chapter 11, by faith, Noah, knowing that destruction was coming, built an ark for he and his family. Now, Let's back up and get a running start into the discussion of Noah. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And being put to death in the flesh, that's the easy part. We know that he died on the cross. We uh, read a book just a couple of weeks ago about the Muslim interpretation of the death of Christ. They, you do know, right, that the Muslims like Jesus. He's a prophet. But they don't like the fact that he died on a cross. In fact, it couldn't possibly happen. Okay? 
something happened to intervene. They either put a substitute up there or he was almost dead and they brought him down. Something happened so that he could live out his life. No, it says he died in the flesh. Okay, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. If he didn't die in the flesh, there is no resurrection. If there is no resurrection, we don't really know that there's any victory over death. Forget Easter last week, okay? It all goes away. If there's no death, there's no resurrection. But made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. Here's the question. Who did he go preach to? And I'll tell you right now, there's at least, well, there's at least four answers to this, if not more. Okay? I was reading a theologian this week, and he talked about the different views. He says, but I've got another one. And he presented his view, and he said, but you know what? I could be wrong about this. And when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask Peter, why did you write this passage? Okay. There is the idea that the Old Testament saints are, were stashed away somewhere, Hades, waiting for Christ to come preach to them. So Christ dies, he descends into the earth, and he descends to Hades, and he preaches to the Old Testament saints, and they go, wow, that's cool. That's what all of that meant. And he brings them into glory. Okay? That's one possible interpretation. Um, there's another interesting, this one to me is a little bit weirder, by the way, but... What, 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 who am I to say? Because it says he goes and preaches to the spirits. Now, this word for spirit, usually, most of the time, but not always, but most of the time refers to spiritual beings, not humanity, not us. And if you remember that other bizarre passage in Matthew, I mean, in Genesis chapter 6, y'all remember that, right? I can't tell you how many times I've had people ask me about this. What was it? The sons of God saw the daughters of men and they went and had babies and these babies were the mighty men of old. And people go, who were these people? And there are those who think those sons of God are demons. And if they're demons, this passage right here, some people take, are Jesus going to them not to preach repentance, but to prove to them, you know something? You were wrong. See, I won. It's like rubbing it in. Seems a little strange to me. One of the discussions that is held, that is had about this passage, deals with the chronology. In that, the implication is he died, he preached to somebody, and then he was resurrected. But as one theologian says, 
that chronology doesn't really have to be the case. Maybe, maybe what it's really talking about is just Jesus preaching to unbelievers. You do know, right, that the scripture talks about us being imprisoned by sin. We are being held in bondage by sin. So maybe it's not talking about some event that happened between the crucifixion and the resurrection. Maybe it's just talking about Jesus' ministry to rescue us who were in captivity to sin. Now, if I had to vote, and I might add, if you disagree with me on this, great. Great. Please do. If you have any big problems, go talk to Don. (laughs) I think we're talking about Jesus preaching to sinners. I just do. I think you can get through this passage without the other discussions, although I might add, I might add, there are lots of people who hold those other positions. Okay, I'm not going to uh, take the boiling oil test on this passage, which leads me to a little bit of discussion. Since we're almost out of time, it has to be a little bit of discussion. Sometimes it really bothers people that there are passages that are hard to understand. I guess I've looked at the Bible long enough that I've just grown accustomed to that. There are things that, I mean, I really don't know who the sons of God and the daughters of men are. I think I know. I think they're the descendants of Seth and the descendants of Cain and they're intermarrying the righteous, whatever, okay? And someday we're going to get to heaven and we're going to go, oh, that's what that meant. When you're looking at the Bible, do not use the difficult passages to base your understanding of the work of God on. There's enough. There is more than enough clear-cut passages to tell us what God is doing and what God expects us to do. What we know is that Christ suffered and died, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. What we know is next week's lesson, because he suffered, we are to live our lives differently than those around us. We know that. Who Jesus was preaching to between the crucifixion and the resurrection, it's a little hazy to me. That's okay. There are things in Scripture that are hard. There are things in Scripture that are hard because we don't want to do them. For example, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. That's a hard passage. Why? It's not hard to understand. We understand the words. We just don't want to do it. That's one version of being hard. There are things that are difficult, but the church collectively has come up with a consensus. For example, in our sermons, I don't know, six weeks ago, 
we had a discussion of the Trinity. It's a hard topic. It really is. But the church has reached a consensus of what that means. God in three persons, blessed Trinity, okay? The hymn. There are other things in the scripture that are hard because we're just not yet at the place where we understand it. And there are other things that are hard because God wants us to live a life by faith. And sometimes we just say, okay, God, I don't know what that means. I'm going to trust you. What we know is what Christ did. What we know is that Noah, in fact, let's keep reading the passage. We've got to make it through this passage. I'm not about to return to it next week. (laughs) Because they formally did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, you do know, right, that God is a patient God. You do know, right, that God would be perfectly just if the first day you sinned, God zapped you. You do know that, right? You don't believe that, but your mind knows that. God could have said, Noah, get your family together. I'm going to build the ark. It'll be ready in an hour and a half. Get your guys on the ark, and we're out of here. And God would have been perfectly just and righteous to do that. But because of his patience, he gave the surrounding community 120 years because of his patience. Sometimes we really want God to zap somebody. I mean, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. How many of you could name somebody that you just wish God would zap? Like today. But that's because we think their sin is bad and ours is okay. We all rejoice in the patience of God. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, the scripture continually talks about the idea of a remnant, the few, were brought safe, uh, few, that is eight persons, Noah, his wife, three sons, three daughter-in-laws, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Now, your Church of Christ friends are going to say, see, it says right there that baptism saves you. But then it goes on to say, not as a removal of dirt from the body. The scrub, rub-a-dub scrub, you know, scrubbing, get rid of the dirt is not going to save you. We know there's a baptism of water and there's a baptism of the Spirit. The baptism of water is a sign. It's a picture. Us telling the community we have accepted Jesus Christ. The baptism of the Spirit is what saves you when the Holy Spirit, well, the Holy Spirit comes into you when you have been saved. (sighs) Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers being subject to him. Where is Jesus right now? He's in heaven. What's he doing? Interceding on your behalf and my behalf. 
He suffered, and now he's in heaven. He suffered at the hands of humanity, and now he is elevated, and creation is subject to him. What does that tell us? It, tell us, it tells us that he did not lose. It's like he died and it was all over and nothing became of it. No. He died, he was resurrected, and he has been glorified. You ready for this? We were dead in our trespasses and sin. Christ, the righteous, died for us, the unrighteous, that we too can be made right with God so that we too can be glorified. The scripture actually says that, by the way. So, remember what all this is really about. Suffering and having hope. Christ suffered, we suffer. Guess what? My suffering's not there in that category with Christ. God was able to use his suffering for the salvation of all humanity. He brought redemption through that suffering. What can God bring through our suffering? I don't know. I don't know. I can read stories. I can tell a few stories about what can, God can do through our suffering. But what we know for sure, the suffering brought salvation, the salvation brings glorification, and all of that collectively gives us hope. And that's what the book of Peter is about. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for what Christ has done for us. I pray, Lord, that we too, that we too would draw closer to you because of what you have done for us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.